0: Now, in this episode, we are continuing in letter number 14 on the reasons for withdrawing from the world. And uh, we're going to continue to see Seneca developing this idea of his kind of strategy uh, for how he is planning to, uh, I guess, make a difference while he is withdrawn from the world, right? Uh, and this is obviously at a time in his life where he was kind of removing himself from from politics and uh, and and trying to kind of, I guess, keep keep a quiet face uh, when there are a lot of powerful people who might uh, wish him ill uh, if he were to kind of step on their toes. And uh, and so in the previous episode, we discussed a few ideas that he was giving us about being strategic with these people in power. And, uh, and now we're going to see in verses 10 through to 16, um, a few more ideas that he develops here, even bringing Cato, the younger into the picture. And so there's a lot to cover today, but hopefully uh, I'll be able to be clear and concise with what we're taking away from these multiple verses here. So let's dive in. I'll start reading and we might stop along the way. Quote, we must follow the old adage and avoid three things with special care. Hatred, jealousy and scorn. And wisdom alone can show you how this may be done. It is hard to observe a mean. We must be chary of letting the fear of jealousy lead us to becoming objects of scorn, lest when we choose not to stamp others down, we let them think that they can stamp us down. The power to inspire fear has caused many men to be in fear. Let us withdraw ourselves in every way, for it is as harmful to be scorned as to be admired. End quote. So, what I kind of get from this passage is that Seneca is sort of taking a uh, judge-not-lest-ye-be-judged approach to his philosophy. And I think that this actually fits really well with the way that Seneca does philosophy as well, and the way that he kind of sees the world to the extent that I understand how he sees the world, right? Because what comes to my mind when I read this is that Seneca was kind of a person who would stand back, And look at what was happening and kind of look at it, uh, you know, from a distance and and to, to see the movements happening, to see what people were like people, what they were doing and and he kind of had that, that outsider view of this and i remember him uh, writing i can't i couldn't tell you which letter it is in at this point but uh, he does write about going to the to the kind of uh, the, the games right uh, these horrifying colosseum games and and he writes about how he would go there not to watch the games but he'd be watching the people Right. And so Seneca was kind of this person who would stand back and kind of watch almost non-judgmentally, right? But then discern and, and make up his mind about what was right and what was wrong based on watching what people were actually like and what the world was actually like. And so for him, you can see how it might have seemed more appropriate to him... To, to not really allow yourself to to get into those feelings, as he said, of scorn and jealousy and hate, right? Because they only affect your judgment of what is right and wrong. Uh, kind of like that line from The Godfather, one of my favorites, right? Do not hate your enemy, it affects your judgment, right? And so, he, he would just take that step back and just watch things for what they were actually like and what was actually happening. And then he would make up his mind about what he could do, I guess, that would, that would make the biggest difference in terms of uh, restructuring reality in the future. And so he continues by saying, quote, One must therefore take refuge in philosophy. This pursuit, not only in the eyes of good men, but also in the eyes of those who are even moderately bad, is a sort of protecting emblem. For speech-making at the bar, or any other pursuit that claims the people's attention, wins enemies for a man, but philosophy is peaceful and minds her own business. Men cannot scorn her. She is honoured by every profession, even the vilest among them. Evil can never grow so strong, and nobility of character can never be so plotted against that the name of philosophy shall cease to be worshipful and sacred. Philosophy itself, however, should be practised with calmness and moderation. Very well, then, you retort. Do you regard the philosophy of Marcus Cato as moderate? Cato's voice strove to check a civil war. Cato parted the swords of maddened chieftains. When some fell foul of Pompey and others fell foul of Caesar, Cato defied both parties at once. Nevertheless, one may well question whether, in those days, a wise man ought to have taken part in public affairs, and ask, what do you mean, Marcus Cato? Is it not now a question of freedom? Long since has freedom gone to rack and ruin. The question is, whether it is Caesar or Pompey who controls the state. Why, Cato, should you take sides in that dispute? It is no business of yours. A tyrant is being selected. What does it concern you who conquers? The better man may win, but the winner is bound to be the worse man. I have referred to Cato's final role, but even in previous years the wise man was not permitted to intervene in such plundering of the state. For what could Cato do but raise his voice and utter unavailing words? At one time he was bustled by the mob and spat upon and forcibly removed from the forum and marked for exile. At another he was taken straight to prison from the Senate chamber. However, we shall consider later whether the wise man ought to give his attention to politics. Meanwhile, I beg you to consider those Stoics who, shut out from the public life, have withdrawn into privacy for the purpose of improving men's existence and framing laws for the human race without incurring the displeasure of those in power. The wise man will not upset the customs of the people." nor will he invite the attention of the populace by any novel ways of living. End quote. All right, so there's a little bit more to read, but I'm going to pause here and see what we can take away from these few verses that we've just read. And uh, firstly, we see Seneca saying something uh, kind of interesting. He's saying, you know, we should take refuge in philosophy. This pursuit, not only in the eyes of good men, but also in the eyes of those who are moderately bad, is uh, sort of a... Protecting emblem, right, is what he calls it, uh, and, and so this is an interesting idea. He he really does believe that if you practice philosophy, uh, then that is the thing that is going to almost protect you from those powerful people who might wish you harm, uh, and and this is an interesting idea. And I think to understand the way Seneca looks at this, uh, we need to actually think about something that he's written previously, which is. That he's actually locking himself away and writing these letters so that future generations can value get the value from this and that they can live better lives, right? So, he's actually doing this for the future generations to come. And so... Seneca sees philosophy as this thing that is kind of a multi-generational pursuit. You're supposed to be thinking about what is true, what is wise. You know, you're supposed to be standing back as he did and looking at what's happening, looking at who's in power, looking at what the people are like. You know as Carl Jung would have said what are they reading what are they watching you know what are they doing with their time this is going to teach you uh, the general uh, the general knowledge of of the people of the time right and so Seneca is looking back and he's watching what's happening and he's thinking what can i learn from this i need to get this down and i need to write about what wisdom is and what the great man is and what the, what the sage is and, and what it means to live a good life. And if I can write this down, then it can be passed down from generation to generation to come. And my legacy, not in terms of my egotistical legacy of his me, I'm Seneca and I want you to know me, but my legacy of wisdom, right? Gets passed down for multiple generations. So he's looking at this in a very long time frame, and, and, You know, Seneca kind of says that, you know, philosophy is kind of this haven where if you practice philosophy, those in power will not uh, seek to to give you harm. But Now, we might think about that in terms of Greece and Rome, where, uh, I mean, multiple philosophers were exiled, including Seneca, uh, not necessarily for his philosophy, but for his political, uh, I I guess, um, his political life. But many philosophers were exiled because they were preaching doctrines and wisdom that uh, the powerful people did not like uh, the people to have. Uh, Now, Seneca may have said, as he goes on to talk about with with Cato, right, he may have said, uh, listen, uh, that's because you're sticking your nose into politics where you might not, uh, it might not be wise for you to do that, right? It might not be wise for you to stick your nose in other people's business. Uh, Rather, you should... Uh, you know, return to philosophy, which is this practice of, of looking and seeing and hearing and watching, you know, and finding out what is wisdom, what is truth. And that is the purpose of philosophy. It's a love of wisdom, right? So I don't want to go too far with what I'm saying here because uh, I don't believe that Seneca actually thought that you shouldn't say stand up to power when something was truly wrong that they were doing. Uh, but then again, you look at his life, and it's not as if he 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 did have any real major moments like Cato did, you know, standing up to the powerful people. In fact, he he guided Nero through much of uh, his reign, and I'm sure that Seneca would have had many opportunities to just kind of throw in the towel and say, you know, this is wrong and I don't care what you do to me. Uh, But he didn't uh, necessarily have that moment, right? And so uh, you get the sense that Seneca is kind of playing a long game here. He's kind of thinking uh, potentially that, uh, you know, I could just stand up and say this is wrong or that is wrong and be the person who judges everybody according to my philosophy, or I could play the long game and see what can I get out of my uh, what I'm seeing here? What can I learn? What can I write down? Uh, so that people after me will gain the wisdom that I learned in, in my life, right? And so that's kind of a more long-term game where he's thinking about not only the wisdom of the moment and, and what is true and what is right, but also what is the deeper wisdom of how I should live my life right now, which you might think includes, uh, you know, maybe he should try and keep safe for a while, get his thoughts down, write some thoughts down and, and write some philosophy and just see how big of an impact he could have on the future, how many lives he could change in the future if he was to kind of, as he's saying in this whole letter, withdraw from the world. And in order to discuss this kind of wisdom, Seneca kind of compares what he's doing to what Cato did, okay? And so he gives this example of Cato during the time when uh, Pompey the Great and 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 Caesar were kind of having this civil war, uh, you know, kind of as Seneca says here, deciding which tyrant will be the ruler. And so Cato was this person, obviously, who who many Stoics looked up to because of his unadulterated commitment to truth and 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 to to not being coerced into doing or saying anything that he did not believe to be true. And so that ultimately led to his demise, right? But Seneca is kind of saying here, well, listen, you go around, <laughs> uh, you know, with your big mouth, uh, upsetting all these people in higher places. And uh was that really was that really a fitting pursuit for a philosopher, right? Or was that sort of uh, was that not the wisest path to take? Because ultimately, uh, he did set a great example of of, of committing to truth. But uh, is there a lot more that we could have gotten from Cato if he had of say uh, withdrawn from public life and started focusing on what is wisdom, what is the sage, what is a good man? You know, trying to get his philosophy down. And so. One funny example that Seneca gives here of why it might not have been so wise for uh, for Cato to be running around getting involved in politics, right, uh, is because he kind of says, well, you know, uh, Cato, you're upsetting these two very powerful tyrants who are deciding who will be the ultimate tyrant. And he says, what does it concern you who conquers? The better man may win, but the winner is bound to be the worst man. So (laughs) Seneca's kind of saying, listen, you're you're upset about this choice that ultimately you don't have control over. They're going to decide that. You're not going to decide that, right? And ultimately they might even decide your fate, which they did, right? Uh, But he's saying what does it matter to you which one of them you know becomes the ruler even even though the the better man will win the better man is by definition the worst man because he's the worst tyrant right and so seneca is saying i'm i'm not so sure if that was the wisest uh, place for him to be and we know that seneca really admired cato he really did admire cato but what we see here is seneca saying i don't know if that approach is better than my approach, because he is ultimately talking about his approach of withdrawing from public life and getting his philosophy down. And he says here, we shall consider later whether the wise man ought to give his attention to politics. Meanwhile, I beg you to consider those Stoics who shut out from public life have withdrawn into privacy for the purpose of improving men's existence and framing laws for the human race without incurring the displeasure of those in power the wise man will not upset the customs of the people, nor will he invite the attention of the populace by any novel ways of living. And this is such an interesting insight into Seneca's approach to philosophy. And it can actually help us to understand that maybe Seneca wasn't just being a coward all his life when he didn't stand up to Nero in the way that Cato may have, for example. But Perhaps what Seneca was doing is he was actually just trying to be wise in his approach and think, oh, well, if I really want to change the world, not just today, but tomorrow and next year and next decade and, and next generation and multiple generations to come, if I actually want to change the world then I better be careful because I'm living in a very dangerous world with many dangerous people who would seek to kill me. And I'm probably better off alive than dead. And I'm probably more useful to people alive than dead. So why don't I be careful? Right. And, and he's giving us this idea that, you know, like previous Stoics, you want to, uh, uh, well, I guess the best way to put this would actually be in the words of Seneca. And I'll paraphrase here, but there is a passage where he talks about how, uh, you know, outwardly you should kind of conform to the mob, right? But inwardly, you should be completely different. And so, it's this middle way approach that Seneca takes again and again and again in his philosophy, which is, uh, listen, maybe it's best for you to not be seen to be trying to be something or to, uh, to to be too disruptive of the public or disruptive of politics and stuff like this. Maybe you don't want to be too disruptive because maybe that's a short-term solution for a long-term problem, right? Maybe what you want to do is find a way to stay safe while you really get your words to the public, the people who need your words. right? And that certainly happened with Seneca's writings. He somehow found a way to uh, navigate this extremely dangerous world of Roman politics and to, in the end have his words uh, be taken to the people who needed it and his words guided and helped so many people throughout history as a result of his wise decision, in my view, uh, to not be uh, so outwardly judgmental in his way of life. All right. So I'm going to read the next couple of verses where Seneca answers a question that you might be thinking as well, which is, well, look, even if you do live this kind of uh, reclusive life where you're practicing philosophy, trying to watch, stand back from a distance, you know, you, you still something might happen to you. An accident might happen. You might die. Uh, in those days, getting run over by a cart or something like that, or, um, you you know, you still might anger somebody. And Seneca even says, even, uh, you know, withdrawing from the world, you want to be careful because he says what one avoids, one condemns. And so you don't want to anger people by seeming too avoidant of them, right? Uh, But he he answers those questions here and he says, quote, "'What then? Can one who follows out this plan be safe in any case?' I cannot guarantee you this any more than I can guarantee good health in the case of a man who observes moderation, although as a matter of fact, good health results from such moderation. Sometimes a vessel perishes in harbour, but what do you think happens on the open sea? And how much more beset with danger that man would be, who even in his leisure is not secure, if he were busily working at many things? Innocent persons sometimes perish. Who would deny that? But the guilty perish more frequently. A soldier's skill is not at fault if he receives a death blow through his armour. And finally, the wise man regards the reason for all his actions, but not the results. The beginning is in our power. Fortune decides the issue, but I do not allow her to pass sentence upon myself." You might say, but she can inflict a measure of suffering and of trouble. The highwayman does not pass sentence when he slays. End quote. All right, so what he's essentially saying here, according to to my reading, is uh, that, listen, I'm going to try and withdraw from the world. I'm going to make the choice to be in safe harbor. But anything that happens outside of that, that's not up to me. You know, fate will come along and and do all kinds of things to me, right? But but I make the decision, that's up to me. That's that's where I am drawing upon my reason, my wisdom, my understanding. That's all that I can do. But anything that happens outside of that, you know, that's that's in the hands of fate, right? And I actually think that this is a really healthy way of looking at your own role in life in terms of the decisions that you make, right? Uh, because all too often we get so worried about what is going to happen once we've made a decision. Now, you should be worried uh, about the resources that you're drawing upon within yourself and without of yourself uh, in order to make the decision. But once you've made that decision, that's really the only thing that you control. Everything outside of that is merely uh, information that you need to look at and feed back into your decision-making process so that you can make even better decisions next time. It's it's not up to you. It's all... (laughs) You know, there is an element of fate there, that things are just going to happen, right? And so, you might think, okay, well, if I've got a tough decision to make in my life, what's my responsibility? Well, your responsibility, according to Seneca here, is to focus on using wisdom, truth, understanding, reason, in order to make the best possible decision. Now, once you've made that decision, it's really in the hands of fate what will happen, but I would say that if something bad happens or if, uh, you know, your, your decision actually leads to uh, an unfavorable result, then your job is then to look at that information that you learn from that unfavorable result and, and then to feed it back into your decision making process so that next time you make an even better decision or a decision that is definitely better than the one you made last time. So I hope that that made sense and that it wasn't too rambly. If it didn't make sense, then let me know. But I do think that this is a good place to end this episode. Uh, and it's just such an interesting dive, this letter, is into kind of Seneca's approach to philosophy and, and why he was withdrawing from the world at the end of his uh, his, his life, right? And And trying to kind of keep safe from the stormy seas uh, of of Roman politics, right? And and so, it's just an interesting look at that. And and, and also, you can, I hope that you can take away some lessons for your own life and your own approach uh, to, to philosophy, but I, I know that not a lot of us can really um, identify with this kind of way of life where you've been in Roman politics all your life or in high-stakes politics all your life, and you've got to find ways to navigate around powerful, uh, evil people. But um, I hope that there are still some interesting lessons that you can take away uh, to think about in your own life and your own approach to philosophy. So uh, anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you next time.